All right, Galatians 6, uh, we are going to, like I said, finish it out talking about uh, tithing, reaping what you sow, and eternal life. We've kind of touched on some of this in the past, I think. Uh, but in Galatians 6, 4, it says this, Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. You know, we cannot get to heaven on the faith of our friends, our social circles, our parents. It is all going to depend on you and what's in your heart. And this is Paul basically drawing again from the Old Testament from a number of places, actually. But one of them is here in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says, In those days they shall no more say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And so he goes on in verse 6 here, he says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So it kind of moves on. Hey, examine yourself. Corinthians says the same thing. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. How, what, what are you looking for? Your testimony that you believe in Jesus? That's not enough. What you're looking for is evidence of faith. Well, what's evidence of faith? We don't like to say it because it seems so anti-Christian today. Works. Faith without works is dead. A tree is judged by its fruit. You will know them by their fruit. You have to examine yourself and ask yourself, what is the fruit in your life? Because the fruit of the church, the fruit of the social circles you're in, doesn't count. And again, there, I, I get why it's such a bad thing to talk about in the church, because it's so easy to make that be a form of righteousness, but that's not what we're talking about. It is a result of faith. And so to see if you have faith, you've got to look for that. Pretty simple. Here, though, share in, share in all good things with him who teaches. That word share in the Greek is koinonia. It's to support in contributions. So this word isn't just about teaching. It's actually about money. This principle is seen throughout the Old Testament as well. And like I said, I think we've talked about this before, but let me go, first of all, in the New Testament to back up what Paul is saying, just to show the consistency here. It says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. So again, you can look at that as the letter of the law, but now he's going to explain the spirit of that law. Is it oxen God is concerned about? No, it's for our sakes. No doubt this is written. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Okay? Timothy continues, he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Here again, we're seeing the same kind of context. It isn't just about honoring as, you know, like you should bow down before them when they come out of the doors. Not at all. It's talking about their wages. Now, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes uh, 
You know, you see pastors with their Lexus and all of these kind of things. And I've recently even heard stories where uh, a church offered him $100,000 and he wouldn't even take the job for $100,000. And I'm like, wow. Where you watch these, you don't watch, at least I hope you don't. I've seen like 10 minutes of one and that's of all I could take before I was getting sick of these preachers of LA or whatever they have on TV. That's just disgusting. That is not what the Bible is talking about an elder should be. Now, I do believe that they are worthy of double honor, but I have to say, sometimes I question if they feel they deserve the double honor. I told some of you maybe this story. A few years back, I spoke in uh, Mount Carmel, Indiana, and a couple of weeks after I got back, I get this phone call from a guy, and he wants to help my ministry, and he just wants to raise money. It will cost me nothing. He's, he'll, he'll raise his own salary, and he says, if I can't get you a million dollars in the first two years, I'm not doing my job. And this guy had had fundraisers with uh, Nancy Reagan and you know other people. And so I'm thinking, wow. So he starts putting this proposal together throughout a couple of week period because I'm thinking maybe, Lord, this is you know an answer to prayer to be able to, if this was even before we got our other museum started. And, and uh, he comes back with this proposal and he shows me that he was going to get paid, I think it was like $195,000 a year to raise money. And I'm sa I said, you know, I don't even come close to touching that. And if I could afford it, I wouldn't take it. And he said, well, you've got you've to change your mindset. He said, you know, Campus Crusade for Christ, the, the uh, director of that gets 150000 a year. And you have to start changing your mindset. And I thought, no. I said, we're not on the same page here. Now, I'm not telling you this to try and, you know, make me look good or anything. What I'm saying is that this is the attitude of American churches that somehow, because, hey, this verse says this, that we should be able to live like the world lives. I think they are worthy of the double honor, but if they are taking the double honor, I just don't see it. Now, again, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm not going to, you know, cast those stones, but I am saying that to keep this verse in context, too, because I, I hear it ignored, but I also hear it abused in the sense that, well, I'm worthy of double honor. Okay, that, that's not a good attitude. Jesus said, foxes have their holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He did not come to build an earthly kingdom. And likewise, we should have that same mindset. And I would say, examine yourselves. Yeah. The double honor of the priests, they got the fat, they had the best of it. But here's the other thing that's interesting about that. We also see people even back then that abused it. If you recall, Aaron and, or his sons would come and they would demand, no, we're getting the, the best part. And they would take it from the people and everything. So they even, because they, they figured, hey, we're worthy of it, abused it. And their heart was wrong in regards to that. So, but yeah. 
Second Chronicles 31.4 says, Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Right there is the key, I think. You don't give to the priests so that they can live a lavish lifestyle. You give so that they don't have to go work in the fields so that they can dedicate themselves to the study of Torah, to the study of the Word of God, and that they can be feeding the people. And if those shepherds aren't feeding the people, they're not worthy of that double honor either. So um, Hezekiah here is doing the exact same thing, recognizing that these people who study and teach should not be forced to have to go make a living in other ways. As a matter of fact, it's not just a should not, it's a must not. It's vital, as you're going to see. Um, let's uh, kind of take a look at this in Nehemiah as an example. Now, I think the devil knows this. The devil knows that uh, uh, to, to basically distract a preacher from learning and studying, filling his time with other things, or making him have to go do other things to make a living. Either or. It doesn't just have to be money. Sometimes preachers fill their time with all these other menial things. Remember in Acts chapter 7, when they are, uh, before Stephen dies, maybe it was before Acts chapter 7. Where is it? Where they, is it 2 or 3 where they pick the new disciples? I don't know. Wherever it is, bottom line is, what we see happening is they say it's not good that we spend our time waiting on tables. So they picked other men. And what I find fascinating about this is that they didn't just say, oh, well, you know, you're not any good at teaching. We'll use you. You go. No, they picked worthy people. Even the people who cleaned the tables and took care of these tasks had to be men of godliness and holiness. That They had to be upright and have good reputations. So sometimes I think we have an attitude that well, this is just a, a little menial task, so we'll let anybody do it. No. Anything within the church, you don't just fill it with a warm body. It has to be filled with somebody who is faithful to God. So, uh, but anyway, the same thing there is that these teachers, they didn't have time. We need to go out being preaching the gospel. If that's not your gifting, that's not your main task, then we should take the load off of those preachers, those pastors today, so that they don't have to do that, and they can spend time studying the Word and doing it. Acts 6. Acts 6, thank you. So in Nehemiah 13, a uh, little background here. Nehemiah has gone to Jerusalem. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. He's now coming back, and he sees that the walls are torn down. They're going to rebuild the walls after the second temple has been built. So um, he sees that they're selling on the Sabbath, and he chases them out. He's angry, and they come back the next Saturday, and so he even beats some of them up. He gives them a beating, and says, you come back again, you're going to get a real beating. And so then they don't come back anymore. So what we're seeing here is that he understood that the Sabbath, first of all, was to be kept holy. And this was one of his jobs. Nehemiah knew the word of God. He knew it and was basically trying to get the people to follow it. 
Well, he also sees that the oxen had been muzzled. In other words, he saw that the priests were having to do things that, and, and having to work to even survive so that they weren't getting money. And because the priests were so busy doing other things, they weren't doing their job of teaching the people to keep the doors shut on the Sabbath. It says this, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. They had to go get another job. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. The house of God was forsaken because they had to go get another job. That is the reason God says to provide for them, not to lavish their pockets or line their pockets, but so that they can do what they're doing. If they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, then I propose they shouldn't be pastors. I've been reading a letter here from a church here in Nebraska from the pastor who uh, basically has been saying that old earth is the way to go and you should not teach just a young earth creation. And one of the things he had said in here, I probably can't find it, it's too long, but nobody, he said, I don't go to anybody's house uninvited, nor will I, because somebody was saying they didn't go visit somebody when they were hurting or whatever. And he says, unless I'm invited, I'm not going to their house. I don't go uninvited to people's houses, nor will I. As I'm reading this four or five page letter, all I can think of is this man should not be a pastor. He is not worthy of double honor because he's not being a pastor. That is the danger of this. And that's what Nehemiah is talking about. That's what we see. If you don't take care of your pastor, whatever church you go to, then they aren't going to be able to do their job. I think in America, it's a little hard for us to see that as much because I think for the most part, pastors are taken care of pretty well. But that's not always the case, especially in other countries. So I want to basically show you some modern day examples here. This is the senior pastor of Daystar Church. Uh, Pastor Sam Adeniemi, I don't know what his name is here, but anyway, he says, according to the cleric, curses attached to failure to pay the tithe have expired. Only worked in the Old Testament. Okay? This is a pastor saying this. The pastor said this while addressing his congregation yesterday where he also pointed out that the tithe was paid in the Old Testament as a law with curses attached with, to failure to pay it. He goes on, he said Christians should not be pressured or forced to pay tithe, adding that not paying tithe does not attract a curse for a Christian anymore. He said since we are under a new covenant, giving is a choice. Everyone should decide the percentage they want to pay with the knowledge that you will be blessed based on how you give. Now, is there some truth to this? Absolutely. Okay. You shouldn't be forced to give. It should be coming from the heart. 
But if you have faith, and if it's not coming from your heart to give, maybe you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if there is no curse, there is no blessing. And if, since this was just a law, then you ought to be able to go steal, and there's no curse to that either. Or any of the other Ten Commandments, there's no curse to. It is true that, you know, it's not like you're cursed and going to hell because somebody doesn't tithe. You are missing out on a blessing, and the New Testament is filled with examples of that of them even taking up offerings and so on, and maybe we'll get to that here coming up. It, it transfers to so many things. There is no hell, but there's heaven. There is no cursing, there's only blessings. Right, you decide how much of a blessing you want to give. So we're no longer under the law, we're now under coercion. Even Abraham tithed well before the law was given. And so the tithe is not just a law thing at all. God always has wanted your heart, and he's always wanted you not to rely on your own things. Even when they left in the Exodus, before the law was given, God blessed them with all of these things, and then he gets out in the desert, and he says, now I want that back. Okay? And, and God provided for them after he did. And so it's important to have that understanding that this is not a law thing. Certainly never has had anything to do with your salvation still does not to this day. It's just that if you don't tithe, you know where your curse comes from? It comes from your pastor who becomes lazy and doesn't study the Word of God, and then you see no longer is the Sabbath being taken care of anymore or, or observed anymore, is what Nehemiah said. The people were cursed. Why? Because the tithe had stopped in a big indirect way. Here we see in an op-ed for the Gospel Coalition in 2017, Thomas Schreiner, the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Associate Dean for Scripture, blah, 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 outlines several reasons why tithing is not a requirement for Christians. The commands stipulated in the Mosaic Covenant are no longer in force for believers. You see, it's just this idea that in the Old Testament it was a command and it was forced on you and, oh, I better do it or else I'm going to die. That, that isn't even what it was. Even then, they weren't tithing in the days of Nehemiah and it wasn't like God was going and crushing each individual that wasn't tithing. It was a consequence to the community, to the whole church. Like I said, this is that modern-day gospel of there are no curses, but only blessings. So, like I said, there's some truth to the fact that I don't want anybody tithing to their churches because they have fear that they're going to be cursed because they don't tithe. I don't want them. That's not your motivation. Well, your motivation also shouldn't be to get blessings. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same opposite end. Your motivation should not be to get the blessing. Both are, are wrong. So... Point is, the devil, I believe, wholeheartedly today tries to corrupt this teaching because he knows that if he can muzzle the ox, the church will start getting lukewarm and watered down. I'll tell you what, this, there's no way I would be tithing to this church. Not a chance. You need to support those 
wherever they are, who are standing up for truth, who are preaching the truth and not conforming to the patterns of this world, don't be giving to those who are flying their multi-million dollar jets and, and preaching this kind of nonsense. Find those who are holding to the word of God. Anyway, Galatians 6.6 6 says, Let him who is taught, again, looking at this, the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So continues on in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So coming right off of the heels of this, he's saying what you sow, you're going to reap. So there in verse 7, he's warning not to be deceived because he knows that we will justify that what we do or don't do isn't going to affect us. We'll justify that. Okay, It doesn't matter. What I do, it doesn't affect me. What I don't do, it doesn't affect me. If I keep the law, I'm not blessed by that because Jesus has already you know, died for my sins. If I don't keep the law, it's okay because, well, you know, I'm under grace. We find those ways to, to justify it. But here it's saying, no, what you do matters. What you don't do matters. So if you sow disobedience, what are you going to reap? Judgment. If you sow obedience, what do you reap? Grace, righteousness. Holiness, sanctification. So that's what this is saying, is it matters. What you do does matter. Okay, Eve. Timothy said, you know, Eve was the one that was deceived. Well, how was she deceived? The serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. Don't worry. It doesn't matter whether you eat of the tree, whether you obey or not. It's not going to affect you. Yes, it will affect you. And so when we hear people saying that obedience and keeping the commandments of God today doesn't matter because you're under grace, that goes right up against what this is saying. Hosea 10.12 Sow for yourselves righteousness. What you reap, you're going to sow. Okay, now he's saying sow for yourself righteousness. How do I do that? Where do I buy that seed? Right? It's next to <laughs> yeah. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in Galatians. I tell you, you live for hell, you're not going to gain heaven. Just saying a prayer isn't going to get you to heaven either. Psalms is another example. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant and to those who remember His commandments to do them. Not just remember, but to do this is a structure that we see consistently throughout all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Those who fear Him and keep His covenant, they are the ones that receive mercy. Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. 
the wisest man in the world, after examining the scriptures, after examining the creation, his conclusion to all of it is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Works matter. Solomon came to that conclusion. Because I'll tell you what, if you don't fear God, you don't walk in His commandments, you will surely die. Again, I'm not saying works righteousness. I'm saying you're going to die because you don't have faith. Because if you did have faith, you'd be walking in His commandments. You'd be fearing God. And if you don't, you don't have faith. That's why you're dying. Matthew 19. Remember, this guy comes, Jesus is talking to him, and he comes to him and says, what I have to do to be saved. Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? If somebody came to you today and asked you that question, what would you tell them? Well, you need to start going to church, read your Bible, and uh, just believe on Jesus. Let's say a prayer together. Okay, dear Jesus, please come into my heart. Thank you. Amen. Oh, great. Now you're saved for the rest of your life. That's how it goes today in so many circles. Uh-uh. That's not what Jesus tells him. He doesn't say, just believe in me. It'll all be okay. He says, so he said to him, these are Jesus' words, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. In other words, do you know who I am? But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? We see that he goes on and we see that Jesus told him, keep these commands. Well, all of these I've kept. Which, by the way, he hasn't kept those. I guarantee that. But he then says, go sell all that you have. He knew that in his heart, his heart wasn't right. The outward actions were, but his heart wasn't right. That's the problem. Your outward actions can look great, but if your heart is wrong, it makes no difference. You see, that's works for the sake of righteousness. When your heart is right, it's works because of righteousness. It goes on in verse 19, Honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, I look at this verse, I look at the one where Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to go to heaven than a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And I've read all kinds of commentaries say that there was a small door outside the temple that was like when the big door was closed, you could still get through through the small door, and they called that the eye of the needle, so a camel could get down on its knees. If you took its load off, it would actually fit through that door. Well, 
I don't believe that's right. I think that is just an explanation to try and make sense of something people couldn't make sense of. Because his disciples don't say, Oh, Lord, it's that hard? They say, Lord, it's impossible. And Jesus says what's impossible for man is not impossible for God. I can't help but think that we in America are, we're all kings. I have thought so many times, even the poorest of us here live like kings. I mean, truly live like what kings did back in those days, pretty much. We have gotten so much. Would we be willing to do what this man did? Go sell all of our stuff to to live in poverty and follow Jesus? I see so many of us, myself included, just like, do we live the life of those disciples where we sell everything and we go off and we go on our mission tours and we're living in our tents and we're we're not building our kingdom here? I mean, look what we have to worship in here. Wow. When I was in India, they were gathering in an old, like, probably 1900 home that was so tiny. The rooms were small. Maybe we could get 15 people sitting shoulder to shoulder on the floor. And then you'd go through the door and another room would be shoulder to shoulder sitting on the floor and another room shoulder to shoulder on the floor so that when I was teaching, I couldn't even see 60% of the audience, maybe more. All they could do is hear me. How many of you would go to a church like that? See, there's something that our culture has raised us up in that to me, this speaks loudly. Luke's example, similar story, but now it's a certain lawyer. A lawyer, now by the way, here, it's not like the lawyer you think of today, okay? You know, like the old jokes, you know, what's the difference between a lawyer and a catfish? One's a bottom-dwelling, like scum-sucking creature, and the other one's a fish, right? Not that kind of lawyer, This is a scribe. Back then, these were people who knew the law of God. Okay, and so that's who he's talking about here. Not your lawyer of civil law. So, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? He knew he knew the law. What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Well, again, none of us can do that. In the church today, we have the five solas. Sola fide, sola gratia, uh, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola de gloria. Basically, we... The ones that we hear most, or at least I heard growing up in the Lutheran church, was sola fide, by faith alone. And I remember the first time when I was reading through James, 
because it was drilled into my head so many times by faith alone, faith alone, sola scriptura. And I would read this in James. You see that a man is not or is justified by works and not by faith alone. Where is sola victoris or whatever it would be here, right? It's not there. Did you just say victoris? Yeah, I was just making up a word, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I <laughs> haven't read the books, but I'm sure it's in there. <laughs> yeah. But is this, is this why Martin Luther didn't want James in the canon? Yeah, he, he did not like James. Martin Luther did not like it. At first, he didn't want it. He did kind of resign to it later. I'm not sure what his all of his reasonings were, but yeah, originally he didn't. Because that kind of goes against what he was, I mean. Yeah. yeah. I always hear this. Have you ever heard people say that all of our unrighteous acts are like filthy rags? It's misquoted. It does not say in Scripture that our unrighteous acts are like filthy rags. It says our righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight. Isaiah 64, we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities, because of our sin. The context is people are wallowing in sin, and to those who do so, there's righteous acts, their righteous acts, are like filthy rags. Ezekiel is going to say the same thing here. He says, when I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity. Notice that. Trusting in your own righteousness. I'm saved. And so now you go live like a hellion and you ignore the commandments of God. You're trusting in your righteousness because you say, I'm free. I'm free in Christ. He says, none of his righteous works shall be remembered, but because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. There's also the aspect of this, you break one of the commandments, you break them all. You cannot keep the Ten Commandments at all. You might think, well, I, I, I go to church, I keep the Sabbath, I you know, don't steal, I don't drug, I don't do this, but yet you're greedy. This can be taken out of context. Our righteous acts done in Christ are not like filthy rags, okay? So I don't want to say that, but I do want you to understand that, that anything that we are doing apart from Christ is sin. Romans confers or con says the same thing. <laughs> Romans says... <laughs> I know, <laughs> words are so hard. Um... It says anything done apart from faith is sin. And that's why I tell people all the time, I can go help an old lady across the street and another person can take and do this very exact same thing, the same lady, do the exact same thing and at the same time of day, everything. One for one, it's righteousness. For another, it's sin. All because of what comes out of the heart and the reason in doing it. Galatians 6, 8. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. 
But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So again, describing what we've been talking about, doing good. What's good? Well, the commandments, keeping God, God's commandments. Look what it says here in Deuteronomy. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. What is good is his word. What is good is his commandments. And notice they're called God's commandments, not Moses' commandments. Today we've also done that. We make them the law of Moses. Even though it's called that, it was, they're not his laws. They were God's. So, this is what Jesus was basically saying when he said what, to that lawyer, what must I do to be saved? He's pointing them back to this very thing right here. Do good. Keep the commandments. Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved. Amen. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We hear that all the time. I couldn't agree more, but I think we have to keep reading too. Don't stop there. Because then in verse 10... It says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, and because you're saved by grace through faith, you better be doing something. You better be walking in those commandments. And this is one of the things I've been talking with somebody here this last week about as well, where there's a miscommunication or a misunderstanding in theology today of these people who say that, you know, we shouldn't get sick, you didn't have enough faith, or, you know, it's not, it's not God's will that people die, blah, blah, blah. Well, you're right, it is not God's will that people die, but it, is, it was never God's will for people to sin either, but we do it. Because the curse is in this world. We have a body of sin, a fleshly sin that we have to live in. We're sharing a tent with a bad roommate. Sin. And until we die, that roommate will be there. And there will be a constant battle. Alright, uh, Deuteronomy 8.6 Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. Again, we're seeing in Ephesians the same thing from Deuteronomy. Rather than walk in them, that it should be our way of life. Uh, when we were there, the Jews, when we talk about the, the law, the commandments, to them it's a way of life. It's not a command, it's not a law, it's, it's just a way of life. It's who I am. It's what we do. And I think that's how we have to have the attitude of what we do. Is no, This isn't like a rule I'm following, this is who I am. You know, for, for me to not be funny, I don't try to do that. That's just who I am. Okay. So, that, exactly, there you go. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us 
that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Okay, we are redeemed. We are forgiven uh, when we break the law of God because we are his special people, because we are redeemed. Don't forget that. What I love about this as well is that he calls us right now, you guys, his special people. That was something that was attributed only to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 26, also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. Notice that obedience is connected to being his special people. Notice, as I just said, you are now associated with the promises of Israel. This idea that there are promises for Israel and there are promises for the New Testament church is absolutely unbiblical. And we can show you that in many, many different places. That is all of the devil. I am convinced of that. And we need to realize that this is what we were talking about the other day. I don't remember if it was in Bible study or post-Bible study, but the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus came and he took that away. And he says, no, it's not just Israel. It's my special people anymore. I have gotten rid of that dividing wall of hostility. And in Christ Jesus, you are all my special people who follow me, who keep my commandments, who love me, who have faith in me. So, um, Matthew 25. Love your neighbor is basically what he's going to say here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. If works has nothing to do with salvation, well, then Jesus can't reject us because of works either. Right? If one is true, the opposite can't, you know, is too. Why are these people cursed when they had bad works then? If works don't matter. What you do doesn't matter. Just as long as you believe. Well, again, there's truth to that. It, you do, if you believe. But if you believe, you're going to have those works. What's going to happen to the Christians on Judgment Day who have rejected the commandments and the Torah of God is judgment. Matthew 7 says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you who practice lawlessness. The Antichrist is a man of lawlessness. And today, many Christians have become lawless. Oh, no, we're not under the law anymore. Doesn't matter. There's no benefit. There's no curse. 
Psalm 50, verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? We have no right to claim the cross of Jesus if we reject Torah. People look down on us because we keep the Sabbath or whatever. Why? Well, I think it's because they aren't looking at Scripture through the lens of God's eyes. Titus, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. You mean we're supposed to like distinguish between pure and unpure, holy and unholy, clean and unclean? It's kind of what it sounds like. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. I go to church. I pray at night. But in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Sounds just like what Jeremiah said. Remember that these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because we can claim Christianity all you want. You can say, God bless you. You can pray. You can, you can go to church. You can tithe. You can do whatever you want. It means nothing if your heart is not for the Lord. Your works will either bring glory or dishonor to God, one or the other. Remember what he's told in Romans as well, that because of the Jews, who, by the way, had all kinds of good works, right, on the outside, he said, because of you, my name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Do you know, it's interesting to me that when I would go out and evangelize out on the streets, the number one thing that I have heard, I think throughout everything, is this. Churches are filled with a bunch of hypocrites. You know what I love doing? Agreeing with them. They're shocked to hear me say that. That's right. I agree with you. And they're like, what? Don't you go to church? We are. We are filled with hypocrites. And it's nothing new. This is what Israel was in these times as well. And, and that's what the Old Testament is constantly speaking to Israel about, and even Judah half of the time. Because they worshipped them, they did the right things on the outside, but on the inside, they had justified, and when they had justified their life, their culture, everything else, what did they not do? Keep the commandments of God. Oftentimes, the church in America isn't any different. We have everything on the outside looks good, but when it comes to the commandments of God, we don't keep it. Something's not right, and I'm the legalistic one because I say it. Again, your works are either going to bring glory or dishonor to God. All right, getting close to wrapping up here now. Verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This especially to those who are of the household of faith is important because I want you to note this. Believers take precedent over everyone else. 
I personally do not give money to any organization. I'm not saying you can't. I'm not even saying it's wrong for you to do it. I'm telling you what I do. When people call, you know, call and they say, you know, this, or do you want to, you know, save these women from being raped or from being trafficked or, you know, whatever. I do not give any, even good things like that, money. Half of the time it sounds good, but it probably isn't good, and like maybe a dime of your dollar goes to help whatever, you know. Certainly don't be giving money to PETA and those other places that, like literally a dime of your dollar goes to save nothing. Point being, though, is when people give, I, if I give, I, what I tell them is I don't give any money unless the word of God is being shared with it. Because I don't care if somebody's poor and you give them money for food, if you're not giving them the word of God for food, what, what they're just going to go to hell a little fatter. Yes, but now even to the least of these, now what I want you to understand though, even in that context, he was talking about your fellow believers first. Remember when there was a famine in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, in Acts 20-something, there's a famine, and they take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. They don't take up a collection for everybody in Jerusalem. They took up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. All, especially, right? Well, and that—that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't give. That's why I said it's not sinful. It's not wrong. But I have made my choice to give to those who are going to do the most good. That they're going to give the word of God, in addition to because they're out there. Don't give it to the money. To, to those who are doing good but without salvation as a possibility. The Zionists, these people who pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to get Jews to come back to Jerusalem, but part of it is they will not even, they're not even allowed to share the gospel. No, you're not getting a dime of my money. If you don't give them the gospel, they're still lost. They, they might be better off starving to death. I don't know. My point, though, is especially to those. The precedent, as I said, are to the believers. That our responsibility is to take care of them first. Not that you can't take care of others. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon their head. That's going to come back on them someday. But what I'm saying is, Precedent is to the believer. That's your first obligation. Verse 11, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So, again, he's reminding us the primary purpose of this epistle was the topic of circumcision. He's bringing it full circle. He started with circumcision. He's ending with circumcision. Now note that they want to be circumcised so that they aren't persecuted. Wrong motivation. That's a compromise. Okay? He says that these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution. You're not supposed to do these things for those reasons. Verse 13, 
for not even those who are circumcised keep the law. These Judaizers, even they break the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Oh man, I just, I hate hearing this phrase. We had 10 people saved last night at our church. 20 people were saved. Maybe, maybe not. Saying a prayer doesn't get you in. But you see how often that's exactly what it is. We, except for rather than circumcision for us, it's to get them to come up to the altar. And then we can put in the books, we had 50 people up at the altar so that we can boast in our flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me. There's nothing that he wanted in this world. He's dead to this world. Are you? Or do we love it? Do you love this world? Oh, I hate the sin, but I I, I do. I love being here. I, I don't like that part, but I love being here. We're foreigners and strangers here. You should always long to get out of this place. And I too, the world, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Circumcision or no circumcision means nothing when it comes to salvation. He says, but being made new, having your heart changed, having the Holy Spirit living in you, that is what avails something. Remember Galatians 5, 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He wasn't saying you can't get circumcised. He was saying if you get circumcised for salvation, Christ means nothing. Just like if you do anything to try and earn your salvation, Christ will profit you nothing. I didn't say that coming to the altar is a means of being saved, like speaking against that, although it can be. The thief on the cross did have time for works, and he, it was exhibited in his words. As soon as he did that, he was rebuking the others by him, saying, leave him alone. We deserve to be here. He doesn't. There was a confession of faith. That's works. And it's not a matter of how many works you have. What it was is a work showing what was in his heart. And so even the... Absolutely. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to an altar. That can be. A, what I'm saying is, is for us to classify that as salvation because 10 people do, because statistically we see that. Ray Comfort is great about talking about this. If, if as many Christians are Christians that came up to an altar, if you just look at all of the numbers of all the churches who claim that as salvation, then this whole world is, there's more than there are people in the world because these people are coming up 5, 10, 20 different times and it doesn't last. Where are they? Next week, where are they a month from now? Where are they two months from now? What I'm saying is that is not a measure of salvation by itself. And I can't say who is and who isn't. All I know is that the numbers we say definitely are not right. I'm not saying don't call people up to the altar. Go ahead and do that. What I hate is this phrase, 10 people were saved last night. We don't know that. Uh, verse 16, closing out, last slide, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Walking in faith, walking in Christ, which means obeying Him. And upon the Israel of God, 
From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. We're done. Which is interesting. <laughs> Paul ends by saying, in essence, look at me. I bear the marks of Jesus. He was beaten. I kind of think that in some senses there was a physical aspect to that, but I don't think that was his real point. His real point was, I bear the mark of Jesus in the sense I follow in his footsteps in what he does and did. And we can find comfort in that. What is the from now on, let no one trouble me part? <laughs> like, I think because when he, if you look back in the context of Galatians, we had those troublers who came and were saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. And he's now gone and said, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. It's not about that. It's about faith in Jesus. And if you have faith, you're going to follow him. And he says, so now let everybody stop bugging me about this. Stop troubling me and persecuting me because I'm preaching this message. I have shown you you're wrong. <laughs> so if you summed up all of Galatians in one sentence, what would it be? In one sentence, can it be a run-on sentence? <laughs> That's a Paul, right? That's yeah. yeah, I would say it's all about circumcision for the means of salvation is wrong, but it does not mean that works is wrong, that works are still connected. Yeah, you need to work on that a little bit. <laughs> yep. Put them on the spot. Again, words are hard. Wow. Heavy, heavy edit week. Marriage is harder. Yeah, it is a heavy edit week. No, that's all right. <laughs> all right, we'll close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are all. God, just work in our hearts. Reveal to us just the things that our culture has shaped in us, that our flesh has shaped in us. And we just ask that your word would be our guide in everything we do, everything we say and think. And that we would be encouraged by the fact that you have taken care of everything for us. That that truth alone would cause us to love you so much that we would just say, Lord, what can we do? Not to be saved, but what can we do in thanksgiving to, to lift up your name, to honor you, to glorify you, and to let the world know of you. So, Lord, bring unity to your body, to the body of Christ, that we might just be stripped of everything, if that's what it takes in this country, that we would lean on one another, that we would be encouraged by one another, and that we would just love one another, be patient with each other, and let us be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen.